0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. The topic is The Road Back Confronting Intermarriage and Assimilation. Uh, we reference an article throughout the show, and you can find the link to that document in the show notes for this episode. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds.
1: You should have the handout for our class. Yamin just posted it. It's a phenomenal article that I just read for the first time. I had the zakhot of going to, um, uh, of going to uh, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb's home and being able to get a couple of svarim, a couple of uh, his books, and being able to use some of his incredible Uh, works and books and um, One of those books was written and edited by my teacher and mentor Rabbi Jacob J. Shachter. This is the book right here Uh, Jewish tradition and the non-traditional Jew and the the entire book is devoted to uh, scholarly articles by some great uh, rabbinic and other scholars um, on the whole relationship between Jews who are observant Jews who are not observant um, and there's this great article that I photocopied a piece of for you, for you to uh, read with me. It's found on page 177 in this book. And you should have the article there, 177. Um, hello, Rabbi Ezra. Hold on. Okay, so this article is called are Jew- All Jews are Responsible One for the Other and was written by Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich. Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich is one of the great rabbinic scholars um, of our generation, fortunately passed away, and uh, was the head of a very, very prominent uh, religious Zionist institution in Israel. And um, he said something really interesting, and uh, I didn't photocopy the entire article because it's really long. Um, I just photocopied one, piece of this, and it starts on page 195. That's what it says in your handout. Uh, I wanna just recognize the presence of of Marie, my father, my teacher, who's here. And uh, thank you, Ezra, for giving Zadie a copy of uh, the photocopied part. Dad, you see where it says education? The road back to Torah, you see that there? We're gonna be reading, this is from Rabbi, Nahum Rabinovich, a great, great rabbinic thinker in Israel. Listen to what he said. It is, however, not possible for us to fulfill our obligation of Arevut merely by welcoming non-observant Jews when they happen to enter the synagogue. Now he's talking about the mitzvah, it's a rabbinic dictum. Kol Israela Ravim Zebaza. Hello, Marissa Espat. Welcome, Marissa. Pleasure pleasure to have you. And let's see who else is joined on here. Um, I'm not seeing names, but I see we have a beautiful group. Thank you all for being here. So he's talking about the obligation of what's called in Hebrew arevut. Arav, ayin reish bet, is the Hebrew word for guarantor. So if you get an apartment in the city and the landlord wants you to have a guarantor, someone to sign at the bottom, so that if you can't pay your rent, who do you go to for the rent? You go to the Arav, you go to the guarantor. And the, uh, the rabbis teach that kol Yisrael arevim, all the Jewish people are guarantors one for the next. And that's the source for the work that MGE does, which is reaching out and trying to engage our less affiliated Jewish brothers and sisters. We consider it a responsibility. All Jews are, uh, are guarantors, if you will, for each other. So he says that um, it's not possible to fulfill this obligation simply by welcoming people to synagogue when they show up, if they are individuals that were not raised in the Jewish community, right, when they just happen to enter the synagogue. No, our essential task, he says, next sentence, is to go out and attract them to Torah and to religious observance. Here, too, our rabbis provided us with very useful guidelines, and we need only to follow their advice. And what we're going to see, and my son Ezra is in the background here, because I said this at my son Ezra's bris. One of the reasons that we named Ezra, Ezra was not uh, in honor of Rabbi Ezra Cohen. That would be weird. And uh, he's still with us, thank God. And it's only the Svartan that name after the living. We named Ezra after the great prophet Ezra, who's always seen in the prophets with Nehemiah, And he continues to say, in many respects our age parallels that of the return to Zion in the era era of Ezra and Nehemiah. An explicit verse describes the experience of those days, and I, I shared these verses at my son's bris, because we wanted to name him Ezra because when the Jewish people, after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, they were exiled into ancient Babylonia, they lived there, and within a 70-year span, they began to assimilate. They began to intermarry, and by the time Ezra and Nehemiah come back to Israel to begin the rebuilding of the second temple, they find that the Jewish community in Israel in complete spiritual disrepair. Listen to what the verse says. Also, we're just continuing on the, on the verse. Also at that time I saw that Jews had married wives of Ashtonites, Ammonite, and Moabite women. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod and they could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. That's a quote from Nehemiah, which is saying what? Ezra, what does it say? Saying? saying that the Jewish community in Israel was intermarrying. Who were they intermarrying? They were intermarrying Ammonites, they were intermarrying Moabites, Ashdodites. How did the men of the great assembly cope with all of those children born from these intermarriages who clearly did not have any concept about Judaism? And he says something very, very interesting. What happened? They were intermarried, they had children, Right? Some of the children are Jewish, some of the children are not Jewish because we follow the mother when it comes to um, their, their Judaism. And he, and he quotes the Rashbam. Rashbam was one of the great explanatory commentaries on the Torah. He was the grandson of Rashi and a great Pashtan. He would give very um, you know, interpretations that stuck to the text. When the people of Israel went into exile in the days of the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, that was from Babylonia, they mingled with the Persians, Greeks, and other nations. In those foreign languages children were born to them, whose language was confused. Everyone's speech was a mixture of many tongues. No one was able, when he spoke, to express his thoughts adequately and in, in any one language, otherwise than incoherently, as it said. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod, and they could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So what happened? And this, is, of course, happened again in the United States. It's a reoccurring theme in Jewish history, which is that we become intermingled with the majority culture. We forget Hebrew. By the way, there are more Jews in America who read and write French than can read and write Hebrew, okay? So this is happening again in the United States. This happened back then. Consequently, when any one of them prayed in Hebrew, he continues to say, he was unable to adequately express his needs or recount the praises of God without mixing Hebrew with other languages. When Ezra, the prophet Ezra, um, not Rabbi Ezra, sorry, not my son Ezra, when, when and his council realized this condition, they ordained the 18 benedictions in their present order. Rabbi Novich is saying that one of the impetuses for the creation of the solemn devotion that we have to this day is that the Jewish community living in Israel post the in between the First and Second Temples, they were forgetting Hebrew. And because they forgot Hebrew, they couldn't pray properly. And therefore, the Anshei Kinesi the leaders of the Great Assembly, needed to create a structure for prayer. The first three blessings of prayer, (coughs) excuse me, consist of praises of God, and the last three of thanksgivings to Him. The intermediate benediction are petitions for the things which may stand as prototypes of all the desires of the individual and the needs of the community. The object aimed at these was that these prayers should be in an orderly form in everyone's mouth, that all should learn them, and thus the prayer of those who were not expert in speech would be as perfect as that of those who had command of a chaste style. For the same reason, they arranged in a fixed form all the blessings and prayers for all Jews, so that the substance of every blessing should be familiar and current in the mouth of one who is not expert in speech. You know, it's interesting you know, in a sense, this intermingling and this intermarriage and this lack of Hebrew knowledge brought about the prayers that we have to this day. So I guess in a sense we have to thank, um, you know, I wouldn't say thank the Jews for, for intermingling, but thank the great rabbis for rising to the occasion and trying to deal with the situation. Ezra, if you want to sit next to Zadie and follow along with us, it's really an amazing article if you want. They similarly instituted the, the number of prayers and so on and so forth. Fine. Now, Rabbi Ravinovich continues to say, we're in the bottom of 196, that is the second page, 196. Uh, The last paragraph there says, the scholars of that generation implemented a wide-ranging educational campaign in an effort to draw those distant from Torah back to it. If we look at the daily life of an average Jew, and even not such an average Jew throughout the generations, we see that the majority of the time he devotes to mitzvah observance and serving God is connected with prayer. There even developed a term known as a prayer book Jew. (laughs) What's a prayer book Jew? It's a Jew who may not have been so learned and knowledgeable but he kept up and he was involved in the daily prayers, describing one who was not learned but who was nevertheless deeply rooted in Judaism because he was raised from his childhood on the prayer book. By the way, this is so pertinent during this COVID period of time now because that's why so many people are feeling at such a loss, not being able to go to synagogue or we're outside and we're in smaller numbers. This was not always so. The men of the Great Assembly placed great emphasis on prayer as a mass educational vehicle and formulated the prayers and the text of blessings by incorporating into them the essentials of the faith and basic Torah values. Although our generation is much weaker, he says, than others than previous ones, we should still follow the same course plotted by the men of the great assembly. And if we do, divine providence will surely assist us. This route is education. And basically what Rabbi Rabinovich is arguing and what I have been saying for my whole adult life is that the way back into Jewish people's hearts always is Jewish education. As Rabbi Mizrahi, he quotes, says, and how will they return to the strength-giving source of the Torah if we do not inform them of the rationale of the Torah? When he says rationale, he says ha mitzvot. It's important, especially when you're reaching out to someone without much of a background. You can't just teach Torah. You have to explain the ideas behind the Torah. Why does this make sense? Why is this going to bring greater meaning and purpose to your life? All efforts must be focused on education primarily, he says, of children, but also of adults, which is what MG is about. It's critical not to give up on anyone, not even those furthest from Torah. We must not be deceived by those who claim that whatever resources available to us are better devoted to educating those who are already observant, and that pursuing the non-observant will necessarily come at the expense of the potentially greater gains that might be accomplished with the already committed, isn't it preferable, they argue, to devote more effort and energy to the edu- education of the elite few and forego the masses who are anyway so hard to attract the Torah? I had this conversation years ago with a friend of mine, and he said to me, Mark, why are you spending so much time trying to attract individuals that don't have much of a background to Judaism? Wouldn't it best be best to spend the limited resources of the Jewish community on the already committed Let's make sure we keep the already committed committed. Now, I guess if you are a pure business person, you might argue that, although maybe if you're a business person, you would also argue that you want to diversify your portfolio and you don't want to put all of your eggs in any one basket. But I'm arguing as a rabbi now because Jewish sources do not allow us to enter into such a mathematical or business equation. We're talking about people's souls. We're talking about holy Jewish brothers and sisters. And how can we say, well, we've got limited resources, so let's just put all the money into, let's say, the already Orthodox community that, because we are experiencing, unfortunately, in the Orthodox world, lots of individuals who don't stay with the game. So maybe we should just put more resources, more resources, and I get that. But what are you gonna do with the literally 85% of American Jewry? 85%. That is not connected, that is not growing up going to Jewish day schools and not learning the substance of what keeps ultimately keeps Jews Jewish, which is Torah wisdom and Torah knowledge, inspiration, purpose, and meaning that you can get from being Jewish. Yet historical precedent, we're continuing, bottom of 197. 197 on the bottom, last paragraph. The handout, if you guys just, anyone who just popped on, we're reading an amazing article written by Rabbi Rubenovich. 197 on the bottom. Ezra, can you just do me a favor, just get me something to drink. This is supposed to be lunch and learning. And that's gonna be my lunch. Yet historical precedent argues against this position. When the standardized prayers and blessings were first instituted, there were undoubtedly a few Jews who had previously been able to reach great heights in their private worship. And who were now constrained by the newly imposed formal nature of the prayers and blessings made incumbent upon all Jews, rendering their personal prayers more routine and less inspired. This is always the problem. Whenever you routinize something, whenever you systemize something, and you say, "Here's the text, say it three times a day," it's always going to be a little. Thank you so much. Chaim, everyone. So, um, when, when prayer became standardized, when prayer became systematic, when prayer was no longer done simply when you felt like it, which is the way it used to be, the problem is it renders the personal prayers more routine and less inspired. But the benefit of the group at large was determinative, even at the expense of these elite few. Meaning, The Jews who were praying before the Anshei Knesset Godola, the leaders of the Great Assembly, standardized prayer. And they created the prayer book that we have to this day. The Siddur. The word Siddur comes from the Hebrew word Seder, which means order. They ordered, they structured the prayers in a certain kind of way. There were people praying already. And for those people who were already praying and knew the language of Hebrew well enough. So this became, this made praying for them a little less inspired because it became routinized and standardized. But everything in life is a cost-benefit analysis. And if you have to take that against, if you have to weigh the elite few losing some of the inspiration behind prayer versus getting the majority, the masses of Jews to pray at all, you're obviously gonna go for the latter to get people praying at all. The Talmud, he quotes, from Sanhedrin 111a, already addressed this issue by relating that Reish Lakish took the verse and I will take you one from a town and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. Literally implying, that's a verse from Jeremiah, that the others would be lost. Meaning that in order to keep the masses you might have to lose a few in the process. Rabbi Yochanan rebuked him explaining the verse to mean that one from every, even one from every town can bring merit to an entire town, and two members from a family can bring merit to the entire group. From a practical standpoint, as well, the presence of children from non-observant homes in a classroom contributes to an overall improvement in the level of the study. So now he's going back from prayer to our original issue. What do you do a vote with all the children that were born from those intermarried families. And we have that issue today. A man and a woman, a Jewish man, a non-Jewish woman, or a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish man, they get married, they have children. What happens to the kids? And he says something a little controversial actually. Follow with me on page 198, second paragraph. From a practical standpoint, the presence of children from non-observant homes in a classroom Contributes to an overall improvement in the level of studies. Rabbi Mizrahi attests to the fact that the presence of Karite children, Ezra, you hear this? Karite children in rabbinic schools created a competitive spirit in the classroom which raised the level of learning there. Do you guys are familiar? There was a Karite community in Israel. These are individuals who reject the oral tradition, and only accept the biblical tradition. And it's a very controversial group. And there are children that are born of Karite families. And the big question was, would they be allowed into the Jewish schools? Um, And you have the same issue today. If a child is born of an interfaith marriage and maybe the child isn't halachically Jewish, do you take that child into the school? And this rabbi is arguing yes, because it contributes to an overall improvement in the level of studies as a sort of a competitive uh, aspect. And he continues to say in the next paragraph, Jewish day schools must make an effort to attract students from all backgrounds and cannot be content with classrooms composed exclusively of children from observant homes. Excuse me, obviously in every community, differing circumstances will determine whether to maintain one school for everyone where all the children can study together or have different tracks within one school. Because, you know, kids usually from families of interfaith families or, or parents who are not observant they tend to be less schooled in religious studies. They may not be able to be in the same classroom just for practical reasons. They may have to be tracked differently. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't attend the same school. What is critically important, though, is that the Torah education establishment Compete effectively with all other factors influencing adults and children in today's world to attract the public to Torah and to mitzvah We have to not just say okay. Here's a Jewish school cup You have to actually go out and attract people. That's what we try to do at MJE to try to not you know uh, Dress Judaism up and misrepresent it. I think Judaism is very very attractive but to Emphasize its more attractive components so that it will draw people this is what the Rambam meant, he says, the great Maimonides, when he wrote, to draw them near through the words of peace, that they may return to the strength-giving source, the Torah. Attracting them with words of peace is the first step. It is worthwhile to cite here the instructive words of Rabbi Mizrahi. He keeps quoting this great Rabbi Mizrahi. Um, I'm trying to find where he first quoted him. i can give you a little background of this particular rabbi. It's a great Jewish scholar, Rabbi Mizrahi. I forgot where and when he lived. All right, We'll have to look at another time. And this is what he wrote. He stated his strong opposition to the ban imposed by extremists against teaching Karaites. I guess there were Karite children and there were some people opposed to allowing these Karite children into rabbinate-run schools in Israel. And Rabbi Mizrahi was against that. He wanted the Karite children to be allowed in, he wrote, quote, this ban was not instituted for the sake of heaven, nor with the intention of improving the world, but it was created out of a sense of jealousy and hatred, which some had against the teachers who were respected by Karaites or against the Karaites themselves. Were it not for the jealousy and anger which they had, they would never have been motivated to act this way. So he's very against this, and he says it wasn't being done for the right reasons. Let's see if we have any comments from any of our students here. um something is wrong with your screen i hope the screen's okay now um uh call yisrael a raven zebazel all jews responsible one for another of course applies to someone who converts to judaism once somebody converts to judaism they're jewish like anyone else and therefore that rabbinic principle of being responsible for one another of course would apply to someone once they were converted um leah is saying i feel like our next step is to get married (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wrong message. Okay. Thank you. Um, Daniel Wallach is saying the following Do Jewish families. He's asking a question. Do Jewish children of non-traditional families have difficulty gaining admittance to modern Orthodox day schools? Say a child is raised by two men or two women. Daniel, Wallach, you just love stirring the pot, do you not? You just love stirring the pot. Okay. So I, um, My experience, and I I had the honor of teaching in two different Jewish day schools, once only for three weeks, I was substituting for a Rebbe in a wonderful Jewish day school called Frisch. Um, That only lasted for three weeks. They offered me a full-time gig, but I couldn't accept it. And then I taught in Ramaz for two years, another wonderful Jewish day school on the Upper East Side. They do not, these schools do not look and say, oh, you're not religious, Uh, you're not from religious family, we won't take you into the school. Now, they may have some requirements because, for example, if the family does not keep kosher, and then the kid is hanging out and having a birthday party and invites all the friends and has non-kosher birthday cake, so the school will have certain requirements, perhaps for the family, so that everybody can, uh, I guess, participate with each other. Um, The other question you asked, I don't know enough about this question. This is more of a modern issue. Uh, let's say a, a child raised by two men or two women. Now I do know one case of a Jewish day school uh, whose parents are two women, two women who married and, and adopted a child, and they and they are observant, they're observant Jews, they're religious Jews, and they uh, and they um, they wanted to send their 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 son, I think, to a Jewish day school, and the Jewish day school accepted them, uh, accepted the child because the child halachically was Jewish and there would be no reason to, uh, to, to, to discriminate. I mean, that would really be wrong and discriminatory. Um, you know, I'm sure there are more complicated issues and situations than that, but generally speaking, um, unfortunately, Daniel, it's not common for kids from non-religious backgrounds to go to these Orthodox Day schools because the parents are not necessarily interested in sending the kids to the schools, which is a shame, because a lot of these schools would take them, Unfortunately, some of these schools are not equipped. So Frisch, for example, the first school that I had the honor of teaching, they had what was called a Machina program. I actually taught in the Machina program, which was specifically a track within the school for kids from non-traditional backgrounds, because their Hebrew wasn't as good, they weren't schooled in Shabbat and Kashrut, they weren't observing these things. Um, and some schools have these Mechina tracks, some do not. Um, I assure you, if there was more of a need, meaning there were more kids—excuse me—I'm trying to like adjust the lighting here for some reason. I have an issue. Um, if there was more of a, a need uh, of an interest on the part of non-traditional families to send their kids to Jewish day schools, which would be an amazing thing, it would help, in my opinion, bring the Messiah because it would, it would kill two birds. Number one, you're giving your child a Jewish education and just because you've decided not to be observant, not to keep Shabbat or Kashrut, doesn't mean you should prevent your son or daughter from learning about it, okay? We always wanna give our kids in the opportunity to make informed decisions. And that's why I always tell people, just because you decided not to be, let's say, observant or religious, doesn't mean you shouldn't give your chance to your son or daughter to be observant. And you can't really do that if you don't school them and educate them And unfortunately, the Hebrew school system was pretty much a failure in the United States, notwithstanding a couple of exceptions here and there of some people who had good, positive experiences. Most people with whom I've spoken that have come to MG over the years that had the Hebrew school education, it's just, it didn't work. It was more school after school, the teachers weren't great, whatever. Jewish day school is the game changer, it's the way to go. Um, And as I said, If we had more families from non-traditional homes sending their kids to day schools, it would number one, give their kids that choice, that option, that knowledge and wisdom. Number two, it would help the day schools because one of the things that day schools suffer from is not enough enrollment. If there were more enrollment, the tuition could go down. Tuition is very expensive in day schools because separation of church and state, there's just not enough money from the government. And there are not enough people. There are just not enough kids in the schools to get enough tuition from enough people to drive the price down a little more. So it would be amazing. And Daniel Wallach, maybe that's a great next project for you to start a campaign um, to send um, kids, all Jewish kids, and I'll tell you where you would start to do your research. You're gonna think twice before asking a question next time. I would go to England and South Africa, and Australia, because you know what they have in England, Australia, and South Africa? Subsidized Jewish education. Their UJA's pour a lot of money. UJA is like the big federation. Federation, this has been one of my critiques of federation. They do amazing work for Israel, amazing work for social services, but in my opinion, they should be funneling a lot more money into the day school system, and they don't. They do it, in Australia, in South Africa, and in uh, England. Now, in all fairness to the UJA, um, they are also able to get monies from government, which they're, they're, the, the separation of church and state are not as strict in those countries as is in the United States. But they give a lot more money from, um, from those uh, fundraising apparatuses to day school. And that's why kids coming from England, Jewish kids from England, from South Africa, from uh, Australia, even if their parents are not Sabbath observant, they don't keep kosher, they're, not tradi- you know, they're more non-traditional, they're sending their kids to day schools just the same. It's just in the United States we don't do this, and it's a big problem, and it's one of the reasons why we have so much um, veering off, if you will, just because you can't expect somebody to be connected if they don't understand why it's worth being connected and without a proper Jewish education, how are you supposed to know? Let's read a little more. There are indeed many problems, particularly with regard to the children of intermarriages, but these two can be solved if only there is proper intention of, quote, drawing them near through words of peace, and if the parents are prepared to commit themselves to having their children study in a Torah observant school. Torah scholars in last generation have already dealt with the criteria necessary to convert a child born of a Jewish father and non-Jewish mother requiring that the father agree with the mother's consent both to circumcise his son and to have him or his daughter undergo a ritual immersion for the sake of conversion. Their ruling applies even if he cannot guarantee that the children will study in a Torah observant school. How much more so would it be apply when such a guarantee could be forthcoming? Clearly all the factors must be carefully considered, especially whether the school is of the sort which can influence the child positively. But here's, and this is me speaking, if the school can, can um, positively influence the boy or girl to be more Jewishly educated and connected, I mean, th- this could be a game changer for so many Jews in the United States. Indeed, it was on the basis of such positive consideration that Rabbi Achil Yaakov Weinberg, one of the great halachic possegs of the previous generation, permitted the acceptance of a child to a Jewish school provided that at the age of 13 he converted halachically. He allowed kids that weren't technically halachically Jewish allowed into the Jewish day school, as long as the parents promised that the child would be converted upon their bar or bat mitzvahs. One must take into account the fact that if the children will not be converted at a young age, but will nevertheless continue to live in the Jewish society and appear as Jews, then in all likelihood other Jews may inadvertently marry them. This is a big problem. This is, by the way, one of the issues that MGE contends with. Sometimes we'll have somebody applying to come on our ski retreat, on our spring retreat, and we'll ask people if they are, you know, it's not a lovely question, but we have to ask when it comes to these very social environments, is the person applying to come on the MGE ski retreat or the spring retreat or the trip to Israel Jewish? Because if they're not, and they're not open to conversion, then what we're doing is facilitating intermarriage. Because we have, thank God, so many people who meet and marry at MJE. Just yesterday, two MJE graduates got married. I wanna wish a mazel tov to Stacy Glick um, and to uh, Yassi Mervis, both of whom got married yesterday. Uh, The honor of attending Yassi's wedding, I wanna wish a mazel tov to Stacy. and, uh, and to Yassi, and they should be Zocha to build beautiful Jewish homes. But this is why it's a, it's a sticky issue for us at MJE that we have to ask people if they're Jewish or not because we don't want to inadvertently be putting people in a position where they're going to meet and then get married. And all of a sudden, an organization like MJE, which was set up to build Jewish families, is now creating just the opposite. It seems appropriate on page 200, we're up to page 200, to summarize with a quote from Rabbi Herzog. Rabbi Herzog was one of the former chief rabbis of Israel. He said, if in the rabbi's assessment, there's a good chance that the parents will observe Judaism and there's a concern that they may distance themselves further from Judaism, if we do not accept them, then he wrote that we may accept the child into the school. This further alienated this concern that the Jewish parent may him or herself also become further alienated from Judaism. If his or her child is rejected, brings us once again back to the issue of putting a stumbling block before a blind person, particularly if we are talking about a person who's in, who intermarried out of ignorance, without any rebellious intention as so common today. When most people are marrying someone out of the faith, they're not doing it because they wanna, you know, give a clop to Judaism, they're rebelling. It's not that they're rebelling, they met a lovely person who happens not to be Jewish and they themselves were not raised in such a way that this was such a priority. And therefore we have to try to bring back whoever we can. It goes without saying that this is the case with so many Russian immigrants, he says, either in Israel or America, but it is the case even across America where many men marry women whom they think are Jewish because one of her parents is Jewish and they have children whom they want to educate and be considered as Jews. However, in the final analysis, it's impossible to establish any general rules in this area. Everything depends on the assessment of those rabbis who are sensitive to all the issues concerned, who are well-versed in all the details of the halacha of Jewish law, and whose intentions are exclusively for the sake of heaven. Um, So this is extremely important. Let's try to do a little review of what we've said so far what Rabbi, Rabbi Novich. Hello, David Schatz. Pleasure to have you here. Um, yes, Joseph is saying Jewish day schools are quite expensive. But you know what, my friend? You get what you pay for. <laughs> Jewish day schools are the major game changer and there are a lot of problems and issues with day schools. They're not perfect, not by any stretch of the matter. but. The rates of intermarriage in the United States are in the 70s, it's like 71%. The rates of intermarriage amongst day school graduates is like 4%, 3 or 4%, it is tiny. Because if you raise your son or daughter to go to a school where everyone else is doing the same thing, where the norm is to observe the Sabbath, the norm is to keep kosher, and by the way, you should just know, those of you listening in who did not go to day school or don't know any friends of yours whose kids go to day school, it is a big spectrum. You have kids coming from families that are not particularly observant. You have kids coming from families that are very orthodox and very observant. It is a real mix. And that's actually one of the beauty, beautiful things about day school. It's not a completely homogeneous kind of group. And you don't have to say to yourself, well, I'm not that religious, therefore I'm not gonna send my kids to day school. No. If you have an interest in furthering the education of your children one day, giving them something perhaps that you weren't given in your childhood, more than a Hebrew Hebrew education, because unfortunately, the Hebrew education, the Hebrew schools have not proven successful. And I'm not saying that the Hebrew school you went to is not a good one and your teachers weren't great, or the rabbi, of the conservative of the Reformed Temple or the Orthodox. I grew up going to an Orthodox synagogue. We had a Hebrew school also. But to be perfectly honest, it wasn't great. Those Hebrew schools don't attract the better teachers. The day schools do. Important issue, a very, very important issue because as you heard the statistics before, the difference in intermarriage and in assimilation rates between kids that go to day school and kids that don't is massive. And I will tell you the main reason for this is the following. The main reason, in my opinion, is is that Judaism is sustainable when it's normalized. What does that mean, normalized? Kids are not heroes. They're not spiritual heroes. Kids are just kids. And kids are gonna basically follow the path that their parents place them on, usually. Once in a while, you get a rebel. But generally speaking, if the parent puts the kid on a decent path, whether it's a, a Torah-observant one, it's not a Torah-observant one, the kid's gonna usually, usually follow unless there's some problem there's some issue and there are problems and issues of course as well um but um it's 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 normalizing judaism you know the hebrew schools you have to understand is you're telling your kid that when school is over i'm bringing you to another school so you can do the jewish stuff that already off the bat turns the kid off what kid what teenager or I don't know, 12 year old kid wants to go to a school after school is done, to sit in another classroom. I don't care how interesting you try to make the material. What the Jewish day schools have done brilliantly is to weave together the Hebrew, the religious, the spiritual together with the general and the regular. Now it makes class longer, no question, but once you're in that world and everyone is doing that, and everyone is in school till four thirty, five 5 o'clock or even 5.30 depending on the school, and I know that's much longer than public school gets out at 2.30, but having gone to day school myself, yeah, I saw Forest Hills High School, public school getting out at 2.30, but that wasn't my world. I was with the friends I was with, so I wasn't looking at their 2.30 versus my 5.30. I was happy where I was. I liked my friends, I liked the school, it was cool. And then Shabbos was something you did, because everybody did it, and people were getting together on Shabbat and hanging out with each other and, and enjoying Shabbos and enjoying putting the phone down and it just normalizes the whole thing. And it doesn't require your kids to be these superhero Jews. You know, I want you to keep Shabbos. Mom, Dad, none of my friends keep Shabbos. My, my friends are going to the ball games on Shabbos. My friends are eating whatever they're eating. Right, you put, you put your kid in that environment and you expect them to be observant, that's, that's unfair. You need to put your son or daughter in an environment where it's doable. And the good news is, you don't have to be fully orthodox to send your kids to an orthodox day school or in any day school. the Solomon Schechter's, which is the conservative movement's day school system, is very, very good. There are other more uh, pluralistic uh, you know, uh, community schools that have wonderful programs as well. But seriously consider the day school movement. It's one of my biggest pitches. Uh, Tom was saying something in a business formula, MG is stimulant that creates a multiplying effect by investing. Thank you, Tom, I appreciate those kind words. Um, uh, let me just see one else here. Joseph, what if you are raised in a Jewish way and still marry outside Judaism? Okay, that happens. That happens. I met individuals who went through the whole Jewish day school system, and, and they married out. It's very rare. Now, it happens, but it's quite rare. And that's all we can do is try to deal with sort of the big, bigger issues. So let me just summarize what we studied today. There is a uh, a principle that we began with that Rabbi Rabinovich who wrote this article began with which is call Yisrael Ravim that all Jews are responsible one for the next. And it's not enough to simply welcome people when they show up. We have to go out, I don't want to say recruit, but we have to go out and demonstrate why Judaism is worth sacrificing for, why J- Judaism is worth um, uh, giving something up for and having uh, as a part of your life. We then discussed uh, that this is a, not a new situation where we have many of our Jewish brothers and sisters who are not connected This is something that the great prophet Ezra when he came back to Israel He found the Jewish community in ancient Israel in spiritual disrepair lots of Intermarriages happening and what did they do with the kids of those intermarriages? They put those kids in Jewish schools and they tried to get the parents to convert the child if the child was not Jewish and That's something that we continue to do to this day, he went on to say that Jewish schools have to make an effort to attract students from all backgrounds, I'm a big believer in that. And if it doesn't work out educationally because a kid from a, a background whose parents are not observant, so doesn't know anything about Shabbat or doesn't have their Hebrew, is not as good. So develop a separate track like the Frisk School had when I used to teach there many years ago. Um, every school, in my opinion, should have what's called the machina track. Yeshiva University, where I have two of my boys uh, Yosef, my oldest, just graduated from there. I went there. Rabbi Ezra was watching, went there. We all went there. It's an amazing program. They have three Judaic studies programs, four. One of them is called Machina, my friend, Rabbi Johnny Shippel, amazing, charismatic rabbi from the Upper West Side. Rabbi Johnny Shippel is the head of Machina. They get a lot of kids coming to college, Yeshiva University, which is an Orthodox institution that are not from Orthodox backgrounds, that come from Reform, Conservative, or completely unaffiliated, and we have a machina program. We have a track that is designed for individuals that don't have that formal background, that formal Jewish education. But our institution should be taking care of everyone, not simply those who are already with the game and were raised with this. We should have much more heterogeneous. we shouldn't be so homogeneous is what I'm saying. Uh, And I think that's a really, really important uh, lesson. What we're gonna continue with tomorrow are the last few pages of this article which is an amazing, it's called A Just Weight and Balance. And we're going to speak about the difference between Moses and Samuel uh, when it came to outreach and a fascinating story from the Talmud that we're going to learn that is also going to shed some modern day relevance on this very important issue as to how we can reach out and how we can be connected and keep as many of our Jewish brothers and sisters in the fold, connected and growing and finding purpose and meaning in their Judaism, like I hope you're finding in our Lunch and Learns and everything else we do. Uh, Tomorrow's Lunch and Learn is gonna be a little earlier. We're gonna start it at 12.15, because I gotta pop off at about Um, 12.50. I'm participating in a uh, panel uh, for over 100 rabbis, uh, giving suggestions as to how we can uh, inspire our congregations. Um, this Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and I will say to you that uh, uh, We're working very hard at MGE um, To secure the right kind of space. We're going to be having amazing and beautiful inspirational high holiday services Uh, They're going to be short sweet and safe That's our motto this year for high holiday services short sweet and safe and we hope you will participate Have a wonderful day everyone. Uh, I also uh, penned a new blog last week Uh, one is uh, one is better than two And, um, is it called one is better than two? Yeah. You can check it out on my Facebook page. And if anyone's interested also in my podcast, um, you can just check out Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. I have lots of podcasts and, uh, also my WhatsApp, um, um, group with some Torah there as well. You can email me privately, uh, WhatsApp me. Have a great day, everyone. Take care.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wild's Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wild's. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.